Chuck Yeager, you may have heard of him at some point in your life, was a famed test pilot. He was flying a plane for the military. The plane was the F-86 Sabre. And uh, as he was flying that plane out west, he was uh, going over a lake, and he he knew his friend lived at the other side of the lake. And so he decided, I'm going to spin this jet upside down, and I'm going to fly right over top of my my friend's house, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buzz his house. Well, as he rolled this jet over, suddenly uh, the Aerleon locked as he was flying. Now, I have no idea what that is, somebody who understands this better than me. But what I will tell you is it sounds terrible, right? You flip your plane upside down and whatever makes that happen or not, it, it's locked and you can't you can't get out of that. And now he's about 150 yards or so above the ground, flying over this lake at a house, right? So yes, in the moment, he's, he's kind of um, fearful of, of what's about to happen. Well, certainly a pilot with less experience would have, would have panicked and, and may have wrecked the plane and had really a fatal crash. But Jaeger instead, he, he backed off of the G's, he, he pulled back, and finally he was able to get the nose, he was able to, to get enough of that um, pressure off that this instrument unlocked. And when it did, he turned that plane skyward and went to about 15,000 feet as quickly as he could, as, as I imagine most of us would. He tried, once he was up that high, he tried the maneuver again. A second time, this instrument locked up. Every time he rolled the plane over, the exact same thing would happen. So while he was in the air, he he began to try and diagnose what the issue was. Once he got safely to the ground, he took a report to his superiors with the event and what had happened and and everything that had been involved. And what he discovered was that three or four pilots before him had crashed and died under similar circumstances, a similar failure. So they started to investigate what was going on, what had happened. And as they investigated, what turned out, or what, what what they realized was the culprit was a North American plant that was assembling these planes. What happened was there was an older gentleman who worked the assembly line who ignored the instructions of how to insert a bolt. He decided that a bolt always went in head up, even though the instructions said that this bolt was supposed to go in head down. In a sad commentary, Jaeger says that nobody ever told that old man on the line how many pilots he had killed. Now, whether we like it or not, pride is actually a despicable, but it's also an insidious sin. It's sneaky. You don't realize sometimes that it's your pride that's leading to your trouble, right? And in some respects, 
That is exactly what Paul is trying to deal with throughout this book of Galatians. There is this religious pride that has snuck in, that has come in, and is now causing this unbelievably, in Paul's mind, dangerous conflict. A dangerous perception on the part of these believers that actually has the potential to destroy them spiritually. That's the book. That's what we've been looking at since the beginning. And that's why Paul starts out in the beginning of the book in the first few verses as strongly as he does. That, that's why he says in chapter 3, oh foolish Galatians, right? And even though he kind of backs off that a little bit and says brothers and sisters as he comes through that discussion, he still begins and ends at times in a very strong way. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. But Paul is going to conclude this discussion in essence with this issue of pride. And in this case, in this text, it has to do with a spiritual pride. For instance, I know and you just don't get it, right? Whether we like it or not, that can creep in for all of us. And so what I want you to note with me tonight as we walk through this very simply Boasting in the cross of Jesus and living for him is the only thing that matters. Boasting in the cross of Christ and living for him is what matters most. It's imperative that we understand that. If we're not careful at times in our religiousness, our religiousosity, if that's even a word, right? we can get enamored with our perceptions and they can get in the way of what matters. That's Paul's issue throughout the book of Galatians. Now, remember the very beginning, we talked about the, the meaning, the purpose of the book of Galatians, the focus throughout. And remember, we we try to, to distinctly describe that as the issue of the gospel. It is an issue of the gospel of grace. Some people define it as freedom, and we talked about that. Freedom does come up in chapter 5, and so a lot of people, that's kind of the idea. A lot of people focus on legalism as an issue. But in truth, Paul's focus throughout is on the gospel of Jesus. What is that? and what it is not. And he wants us to be careful that we understand that. Like it or not, even in the 21st century, depending on your upbringing, depending on your background, depending on your perceptions, all of us can kind of bring this merit-based standing before God to our relationship with him. And Paul is addressing that throughout. We don't bring any merit to this. We, our standing is based solely, only on Jesus, his work, all that he has accomplished through his work on the cross. That is our standing and that alone. So as Paul concludes, and we kind of know he's coming to his conclusion because of verse 11. 
Verse 11 is a very interesting verse. In our day and age, we almost think of it like, and I don't know about you, but as I read those words, the first thing that popped into my mind was a kindergartner, right? How does a kindergartner write their letters? You, you remember that, that special paper in kindergarten? The lines were like this big, and you've had a dotted line in the middle, right? And, and, and the letters, they just are enormous, Well, that's what I'm kind of thinking of as I get to this 11th verse. But in truth, in the first century, many times when someone would write a letter, they used a secretary or a scribe. So in some ways, Paul's acknowledging that. Probably Paul has used somebody else to write the first major section of this letter. He now personally is taking the pen in hand and he is finishing This letter. Now, a couple things make that significant. One, it adds authenticity. So the fact that Paul says, I'm taking the pen and I'm finishing this letter myself, the people know, hey, this is from Paul. But I also think it's fascinating that Paul references his style. Some people suggest a couple of things. One, Paul didn't have very good penmanship, right? Paul's acknowledging that. Why? Because he's going to talk about boasting in our flesh, right? Some say that's not necessarily why Paul wrote the way that he wrote. Some suggest that there's a style in this period. And in order to distinguish himself from the scribe, from the secretary who's written the first part of this, he writes in a distinct, different style. Certainly, we could say, by making his letters larger, right? So it's obvious that it is him that's writing. Once he tells us that, he goes back to the stuff, the issues that he's been dealing with since the beginning of the book. And really, we see that in verses 12 through 16. Paul is going to rehearse a couple of these purposes, but he's also going to expand a little bit on his own approach and his own thought about the gospel and how it relates practically to life. So he begins that in verse 12. The first part, he says, those who want to make a good impression in the flesh, those are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. So Paul is initially addressing, once again, this issue of making a good impression in the flesh. Now, when, when we read that, there's a part of us that reads that and we think, ah, what's that mean? Folks, what Paul is addressing at the beginning of verse 12 is peer pressure, right? Have you ever heard of that one? You know what I mean? This, this impacts all of us. Um, we would love as adults to pin peer pressure on teenagers, right? Or, or young adults, you know, they struggle with that. No, we all struggle with that, Right? And when somebody comes to our house, what's in the back of our mind? What are they going to think about if you're a man? What are they going to think about my yard? You know, are, are the lines straighter than theirs? Are, is the grass greener? Is it, you know, do I got bald spots in the middle of the yard? You know, what, what, was, was one of my kids or a dog out there digging? Uh, that, that's what drives me crazy. You know what I mean? The dogs are making horrible paths in the backyard and I'm trying to fix them and I'm putting barriers up. It doesn't work. You know, they're, they're dogs. They like, you know, they're like rats. They get in around the barrier. I don't know how. So 
there's that pressure. What, what are they going to think? Uh, many times for a lady, it's on the inside of the house, right? When they walk into my house, what are they going to think? Are they going to think my, my, my decorations are nice? Are they going to think that my house is clean? Are they going to think other things, right? All of these thoughts go through all of our minds. And what Paul is addressing here is this connection of circumcision with the gospel. The connection of circumcision with my standing with God and with the church corporately. And what he's addressing again is merit. I am bringing merit into the relationship with God based on what I've done. What has Paul said from chapter one? Not about that. It's not about your merit. It's not about what you do. You don't have anything to offer, truth be told. You, you don't have anything to bring, right? So he again focuses our attention on that. Making an impression is a big deal. This wasn't a big deal in the first century. It doesn't matter today. It's every bit as significant to us today. It's just that the things that we care about making an impression about maybe are a little different than the first century. Right, But we still care about that issue. He goes on in the second half of verse 12, and he says, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, this is interesting. Why are people going to be persecuted if they try to take part in the cross of Christ without circumcision? What is he describing? Well, likely there's two aspects to that. All right, Aspect number one are there are Jewish unbelievers who are going to say, hey, you, you have to be circumcised. It doesn't matter what you claim your relationship is with Jesus of Nazareth. That, that's not the issue. You, you still, you, you have to be circumcised. That's a big deal, right? Number one. Number two, within the Roman culture, it is believed at times the Jews were more acceptable than believers. So is there going to be oppression because I'm a follower of Jesus and I, I'm kind of switching from being Jewish, right? There's this weight. And so what Paul is saying is sometimes you're being encouraged to do this. Why? Because of persecution, because of opposition, because of the pressure. You're being called, hey, Get circumcised, and you can have Jesus too, but get circumcised and life will be a little easier. Paul says, no, that, 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 that is not what this is about. We have missed it if we think that's the answer. And that's Paul's point. He moves on in verse 13 and he says, for even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves. Now, uh, Paul kind of intimates at this earlier. He, he kind of gives us this picture in chapter 3. Listen, you're under a curse if you claim you can be right with God by keeping the law. By keeping the law, what Paul is talking about is circumcision, and, and I think to a great extent, kind of the Mosaic law. If you keep that, you can be right with God. Paul's saying, no, no you can't. Of course you can't. If you think you're under that law and can obey that law, what you're missing is that you're under a curse, chapter 3, verse 10, right? You, you are cursed under the law. Jesus is the only one that can bring you out from under that curse, right? 
Here, though, what he suggests is all those who are claiming be circumcised and then you're under the law and then you have merit with God, he says, stop for a second. They don't even fulfill the law. They aren't even being obedient to the law in every single area, in every single way. They're they're not even fulfilling what they're calling you to do. They're not living up to the expectation that they're putting onto you. It's not realistic, right? This is Paul's point. And he goes on to the rest of verse 13. He says, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to what? To boast about yourselves or to boast about your flesh. So because of being circumcised, you then get to take credit, right? Hey, look at what I've done. Look at how I've walked with God. Look at the relationship that I have. And once again, somebody asked me early on in our discussion, how would circumcision even be observable, noticeable? There had to be something on the garment or outside that was worn that would be evidence of such a thing, right? That's, That's the only way we know. That's the only way they would have known. So certainly there's that pressure because of that. And that's what they're pressing on. Hey, this has to be. Those of you who don't have it, you need to get it. And if you don't get it, well, you haven't kept the law. And therefore, you can't be right with God. The goal for them seems to be that they can boast in what they've done. Folks, this is is not new. If you consider for a moment... Do you realize that every religion in the world shares this mentality? Every religion in the world shares the mentality of merit-based relationship with God. And whatever God they serve or worship, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, folks, the truth is Catholicism. It's based on a merit system. If my good can outweigh my bad, right? Uh, You've heard of the pagan idea of karma, right? Well, this is my good outweighing my bad. Folks, that is pagan. It is foreign. And the truth is, for believers, that's never what it's about. Your good can never outweigh your bad. It doesn't work that way. So Paul is calling them, be careful that you're not living exactly what these opponents are are telling you to do, that you're not living to boast in your flesh in what you've done. You've done the right thing, and therefore you have right standing. No, that's not true. Our standing with God is not based on performance. It's based on Jesus. That's it. That's the distinctive that Paul wants these people, these believers to comprehend. And so now he turns and gives probably what for most of us would be the most familiar verse in this particular section. Verse 14, he says, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, My boasting, my standing, what I glory in is not what I've done. It's the cross of Jesus. It's what Jesus has accomplished 
for me. It's what Jesus has accomplished on my behalf. That's what I boast in. That's what I care about. That's what motivates my living. That's what motivates my ministry. That's what motivates my teaching. It is the cross of Jesus. That's what I'm boasting in. That's what I'm resting in. That's what I glory in. Folks, that is critical that we understand that. And that is why, by God's grace, as we come together every week, that's our focus. Our focus is not if you do this and don't do this, right? If you wear this and don't wear this. Uh, If you listen to this and don't listen to this. Now, are there certain things that we should do and not do? Of course, right? But who informs that? God, through the word, by the ministry of his spirit, working in our hearts, right? It's not, if I do this, I I lose my merit. And if we're not careful, as we've discussed numerous times through Galatians, we can do the exact same thing as the opponents in Galatians. We can be living our Christian life based on our own merit, Look what I've done. Look how how I obeyed. Look how I followed. Look, see this set of rules? I'm obeying this set of rules. That's exactly what's going on here. And we have to be careful. The truth is, if we know Jesus, our lives will be transformed. There is a difference. As we discussed last week and two weeks before that in Galatians 5 into the beginning of chapter 6, your life will be different if you have a genuine relationship with Jesus. But it's not because you're working to be different. It's the power of the Spirit of God at work in you, shaping you and molding you and forming you through the Word, right? At work in your life. And this is, for Paul, this is the grounds of boasting. It's Jesus. It's what Jesus has Accomplished. It's not based on the law and keeping the law and ethnicity or any of that. It's based on the work of Christ and his resurrection. Now, what's interesting is how Paul continues and the next phrase that he gives us. Look at what he says in the middle of verse 14. So based on that, based on my boasting, I'm not boasting in anything except the cross. The world then has been crucified to me through the cross and I... To the world. Now, what is Paul describing? As I read on this, one commentator noted or kind of uh, stated it like this It's as though his interest in the world has died, and vice versa. Now, for for some of us, we would say, well, we have to be careful. We're, we're, We're not so heavenly focused. We're no earthly good, right? You've heard that at some point in your life. Folks, the truth is the average believer has no problem in that area. Our our focus is so earthly. We are so earthly minded. It's difficult for us to even contemplate uh, the glories and uh, the necessity and the significance of eternity with Jesus. And you can even uh, see that evidenced in people's response to the word. I, I was talking after our Q&A this morning. Somebody asked a question, and so I went back to try and give a little more info and clarify, and, and the person said, well, the, the person I'm talking to, they said, the, 
there's a difference in translation. It says in the one, in my father's house are many mansions, right? But in the other one, it says, in my father's house are many rooms. And and she said to her friend, she said, you see, that's minimizing uh, what God has done or will do for us. And I said, you know what's the saddest truth about that? It's not minimizing a thing. Think about in your mind, if your anticipation is, I'm going to heaven for a mansion. You've already missed it. Heaven's not about a mansion. Heaven's about Jesus, a person. You get Him for all eternity. You get to be with Him forever. Folks, do you see how misguided, how quickly misguided we are? It's it's ironic. It, 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 I, like, I can't even wrap my head around that. And so, can you see how crazy that sounds? And yet, often, if we're not careful, we think the same way. And that's exactly Paul's point. I'm no longer enamored, bogged down with the stuff of this world, with the ambitions of this world the possessions of this world, the materials of this world, the relationships of this world. I'm not caught up in all of that. Now, again, as Paul wrote, he was a really relational guy, right? I mean, goodness, he'd never been to Rome and he spent a chapter telling them to say hi to all the people in Rome that he knew. I mean, that's amazing, right? So Paul's a relational guy. But even in Philippians, he says what? I'm struggling because you know what? If I could, I would go today to heaven to be with Jesus. My struggle is, I don't think you're ready for that as a church. But I'm ready for that. I mean, is that that what's in our hearts? I just long to go and be with Jesus. You know, there's an element for all of us, we may say, I do long for that, but I'd kind of like to accomplish this before that. I'd kind of like to get to this place in my life before that, right? You ever think about that? I remember thinking about that as a teenager. Man, I, I hope maybe I can go to college before that happens. You know what I mean? Just to see if I can survive that experience. I did, barely, you know? And, and then there's the next level. I wonder if I can do that. I wonder if I can get my first job. I wonder if by some miracle I can talk somebody into marrying me, right? I, I wonder if, if by some miracle, we, you know, we, we have little ones and they, and they survive. You know what I mean? Which was never because of me. It was probably in spite of me. You think about all those things. And we think about all those things. Why? Because we're so tied to this world. Paul says, I'm not tied to this world. This world has been crucified to me and I to this world. If I left it tomorrow, I'd be just fine. Is that how you think? Is the cross of Jesus mean that much to you? That's a hard question, isn't it? I mean, it is. It is a hard question. And yet for all of us, there's this pride a little bit that says, man, I'm walking with the Lord. I know the Lord. I'm I'm doing what I should and but really? Are we like that? Our boast is in the cross of Jesus. We've died to the world. The world's died to us because our vision, our focus is firmly fixed on Him. 
Think about our death to the world, even in the area of selfishness. A lot of times, whether we like it or not, we are incredibly selfish in our relationships. What do I get out of this relationship? (laughs) Right? Even, Even in our marriage, what do I get out of this? What are you doing for me, right? How are you helping me out? Or how are you fulfilling me? That causes real tension in a a relationship, doesn't it? Well, as I am boasting and glorying in the cross, I'm dying even to my own selfishness. This is transformation that Jesus came to accomplish in the life of his people. And this is what Paul's describing. And folks, listen to me. This doesn't happen because you fulfill some duty that you perceive to be necessary to be right and establish merit with God. It doesn't happen. That's Paul's point. Circumcision can't do that. Only the cross of Jesus can. He goes on in verse 15. And he says, once again, for both two things. Circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. Now, lest you think Paul's picking on one or the other, Paul says, listen, it doesn't matter which way. It doesn't matter where you are in this discussion. Circumcision or uncircumcision, it it does not matter. It, It doesn't mean a thing. Only what? Only. Only what matters instead is a new creation. Again, it's the transformation. Paul is the only one that uses that phrase, new creation. He uses it twice. He uses it here, and he uses it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know that passage. When you are in Jesus, you are a new creation, right? And the old things are passed away. You see the connection, verse 14, verse 15. When you are a new creation, those old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Why? Because of Jesus and because of the transforming reality and power of the cross at work in your life. The work of Jesus, what he accomplished for you, it reshapes you and reorients you. Is that your experience? Folks, that's what's supposed to happen. And the way that it happens is exactly what we looked at last Sunday night, verses 1 through 10. What does he say? What's he talking about? He's talking about relationships. He's talking about the way that we engage day to day. He's talking about the way that we interact. And folks, sometimes I don't think that we see this. I don't think it even hits us. It, 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 it smacked me last week between the eyes. Verse 7 and 8, he talks about what? Sowing and reaping. What? How do we normally apply that? Truth be told, we normally take verse 7 and 8 and and sowing and reaping and we yank that out of there and we say, if you sow to your flesh, meaning if you go to this place or if you go to this place or if you do this thing or if you do this thing or if you do, I'm going to give you a list of stuff you're not allowed to do. And if you do it, you're sowing to the flesh. Says who? Me. That's who says, right? That's not what that means. What he's talking about is the way that we engage and treat one another. Now stop for a moment and consider this again. Paul's addressing this throughout this letter, but it it comes to its peak in chapter 5 and in the beginning of chapter 6. The sowing and reaping is the fleshly 
way that we often engage others. How do we know if we're engaging one another in a fleshly way? Folks, it's, it's not subjective. It's not subjective. It's not, I feel like that was flesh. No, he literally lays out for you the works of the flesh. Chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. And what does he say? Things like strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and selfish ambition and dissension and factions and envy, right? I mean, folks, these are clear displays of flesh. Now stop for a moment. I want you to think back over your week. Did you have any fleshly interactions? Actually, for most of us, we could just think probably of one day. (laughs) Did Did you have any fleshly interactions on Wednesday? Right? Did you snap at anybody? Did you, you know what I'm saying? Were, were, did any of those show up? Now, think about this. If we sow to the flesh repeatedly, what do we reap? Flesh. That's, that's what we're going to get back. We're going to get destruction. Now, many times we look at that again, we're looking at destruction being eternal damnation. No, you're reaping the consequences of engaging others in a fleshly way. The same is true on the other side. You engage somebody in a spirit-controlled way, what do you reap? The benefits of that. And folks, that is Paul's point. We are often so enamored by this life and this stuff that we miss the transformation, the new creation that God has made us to be. And we just keep kind of habitually yielding to what? Flesh. So to the flesh, so to the flesh, so to the flesh. That response was fleshly. That response was flesh. That response was fleshly. We, we don't even realize it. And we're always sown to the flesh. And then we wonder, man, why, why am I getting this back out of this relationship? Right? Why am I getting this reaction from my kids? Well, what was my reaction? Why am I getting this reaction from my spouse? Well, what was my reaction? Why am I getting this reaction from my boss or my coworker or my neighbor? Well, what was my reaction? Right? Folks, it's, it's critical that we understand the necessity of responding in a spirit-controlled manner with gentleness, with Love. Folks, think about the relational aspects of those spirit descriptions. Love and joy. How many people have you interacted with and you walk away from and you say, man, that person was joyful. They were joy filled. You kind of are wondering what is wrong with them. You know, if you interact with somebody like that, you're thinking, what happened to them? I mean, did they. Somebody give them something today or, you know, in my case, bring them a coffee or what? You know what I mean? Like, what happened? Right? It's contagious. But think of the relational dynamic of so many of those words. Folks, even temperance. How many times are we out of control in our engagement with somebody? That's a relational word. The Spirit of God is, is given to transform the way that we engage. I don't think Paul's moving from that. You are called to be a new creation, different in the way that you engage. 
And I'll be honest with you, there are a thousand times I've interacted with somebody and walked away and thought, there's no way that person's a believer. They're a meaner than a snake. You know what I'm saying? That's stuck in a pit and it's just trying to get out of there. Right? They They just seem mad and angry and bitter about everything. And there's some people you interact with and you're saying, that person has to know the Lord because they are just different. People aren't that nice unless they know something. You know? It's evidenced by the way that we engage others. What comes out of you as you engage others? It's critical that we understand the transforming power that's supposed to happen for us as God's people. Look what he says at the end. Verse 16, he says, Now, so may... Peace come to all those who follow this standard or this rule, this guide. Paul is laying out an appropriate guide, understanding, model for them to follow in relation to the gospel. And then he goes on and he adds, and mercy even to the house or to the Israel of God. Now this phrase, we could spend a lot of time on it. We, we will not. There's been a lot of ink spilled over what this means and doesn't mean and all kinds of things. What I want to clarify with you tonight is Paul is not reorienting the church and calling it now the Israel of God. The church becomes Israel. That's not what's happening. All right, that is not what that means. And I think that the, the way that we know that in part is the way that this is framed. He's initially speaking to the church in verse 16, may peace come on all those who follow this. So he's saying that to the church corporately. And then he says, and mercy even, even to the Israel of God. So believe it or not, There's like six different interpretations or more, depending on how you slice it to one degree or another, as to what this is. I think the clearest way to understand this is these are believing Jews. These are Jews who have placed their faith in Jesus. Paul includes them and in a sense offers this special kind of category of mercy to them that they would experience, in a sense, uniquely God's mercy in their lives as they continue to grow and continue to walk and continue to be transformed. And there is a difficulty for them that doesn't exist for Gentile believers. There, There is some unique challenges. Paul understands that. And so he's pleading with God for mercy for them. Verse 17, he transitions now really to kind of a very brief concluding statement. He says, first, so let nobody anymore trouble me because I bear the marks uh, on my body, the marks of Jesus. Paul is asserting here that the trouble he's getting from these opponents, they don't share because they don't bear the marks of persecution. They don't bear the marks of this message on their body. They haven't had to suffer persecution As Paul says, so Paul says, listen, based on what I've suffered, based on the evidence that's clear, right? Don't don't give me a hard time anymore. And then verse 18, he signs off as he always does or similarly does. He says, brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace to you. He always, if you remember, always ends a book, always begins a book. Grace to you. And often he'll include Mercy 
uh, or he'll include peace with that because all of that is impacted by our standing. God is giving you grace or strength through Jesus to live out the reality of the gospel on a daily basis. So hopefully as we walk through this, you can see boasting in the cross of Jesus should lead to living for him on a daily basis. The 19th century hymn uh, records this well, in the cross of Christ I glory. And the author writes the following, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. When the woes of life o'ertake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy. Never shall the cross forsake me. Lo, it glows with peace and joy. When the sun of bliss is beaming, light and love upon my way. From the cross, the radiant streaming adds more luster to the day, bane and blessing, pain and pleasure by the cross are sanctified. Peace is there that knows no measure, joys that through all time abide. What tonight as a follower of Jesus do you glory in? If it's anything other than the cross, we need to recenter, we need to refocus. The cross for believers is what we rest in and boast in and glory in. It's our hope. It's a foundation for us no matter what we face. Is it yours? If not, by God's grace, it can be. If you are a believer, are you resting and focused on all Jesus has accomplished for you? Is it shaping you and changing you and transforming the way that you think and respond? It can. It should. But that's not natural. So we need help. We need grace. 